Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket, the place where you could join us, healthcare leaders and influencers, to make a difference and break the pattern solve the things that are really causing inefficiencies in healthcare and defeat the common enemy, which is bad outcomes. We really appreciate you tuning in once again. The beauty of the show is that you can listen on demand. And uh, we always have the opportunity to visit with very interesting and unique guests. Today, I have a very awesome guest for you today. His name is Neil Versell. He is a veteran healthcare journalist currently working with Genome Web LLC. He's been in the healthcare journalism business for quite some time and has been really just a tremendous contributor to the journalistic realm of healthcare. He's been featured in in the Chicago edition of Business Week, Chicago Sun-Times, Forbes, just eHealth, and the list goes on, but he's, he's really made some good contributions to the field. And the reason why I wanted to have Neil on today is because he offers a unique perspective to healthcare leaders as a member of the journalist community. And I wanted to have him share some of his thoughts on what are the things that we could focus on if we're going to improve outcomes and really take a journalist spin with it. So, Neil, that's the brief intro on you. I want to just turn over the mic to you and, and uh, have you fill in any of the gaps that I may have missed in your intro. Welcome to the show. Sure. Thank you, Saul. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's interesting to be on the other side of the desk this time. I've done some podcasting myself, too. Not, not as professionally done as you, but I've, I've dabbled in it. I think you covered it pretty well. I've been covering health care since 2000. I've been covering health IT since 2001. And actually, just since April of this year, I moved over into Genome Web, uh, which is kind of a different world for me in some ways. I'm covering the intersection of genomics and informatics. So I still have the, the IT background there. The idea behind me taking this job and them offering me the job is that genomics is finally making its way out of the lab and into clinical practice. And, you know, people are looking for practical applications of genomics, not just research. So I have building contacts and, you know, certainly had a lot of uh, have a lot of knowledge of the provider side of, of healthcare, as well as the patient side of healthcare. And uh, you mentioned, I think, one thing in your introduction that sort of got me thinking. I'm not just, you know, I've become a little bit more, I'd say, hands-on and participatory in the last five years. My eyes were opened uh, when my dad passed away five years ago when he was, in my opinion, badly mistreated in a hospital while he was dying of a terminal disease. And that really got me. And I personally prevented two adverse events from happening in just just a short time, you know, being in the hospital by his bedside. Poor processes, lack of communication, and and lack of accountability. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. And I know I'm not, and my family are not unique here. I know every family has a story like that. There's definitely a lot of stories. You know, I, I totally agree. There's 
a lot of stories out there like that. And um, frankly, you you were one of the few that is able to to actually influence care as proactive enough to be able to prevent things like that. And so this happened five years ago, it sounds like. And if you were to go back to the beginning of your career, I know mm-hmm. that was sort of a meaningful thing that happened five years ago. Why did you decide to get into this field to begin with, the medical sector? Yeah, well, it's kind of serendipitous. I have a background in business reporting, had a background in business reporting before then. And at the time, Modern Physician, which was a modern healthcare spinoff, which was then rolled back into modern healthcare a couple of years later, and I lost my job as a result of that. They needed a finance reporter at the time to cover physician practice management. A year later, our editor retired. Somebody who's probably well-known in the field as well, Joe Kahn, who had been the IT reporter, became mm-hmm. was promoted to editor. I took the IT beat and sort of ran with that. Joe just retired from Modern Healthcare. He was one of the few from Modern Physician who was kept on, but he's a good friend of mine, you know, longtime colleague and former boss and and good friend and equally, if not more respected than I am in, in this business. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it yeah. just happened serendipitously. Yeah. Bubbles with some of the folks that had already been established. And there you go. It seems like oftentimes that's the pathway that we end up here. Yeah. And I was only there for three years, lost my job, went into freelancing and stuck with the, the healthcare IT beat, which was just starting to really take off around 2004. And I was really freelancing for 11 years. That's a quite extensive period of time. And and in that time, you also started a blog. Is that correct? Right. I was one of the first to do a healthcare IT blog starting in sometime in 2004, I think. And about a year later, I started podcasting using very rudimentary equipment, which I still have. I bought a a $2 microphone off of eBay. $2. A very good. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. And later bought a mixing board for about $10 that was kind of a pain to haul around to conferences. You had to take it out at airport security, like a laptop, usually. And it was heavy and I still have it, but you won't see me bringing it to many conferences anymore. But I never made much money off of blogging, but it was a way to sort of keep my name out there. And it led to me getting some free, a bunch of freelance gigs. So in that sense, it it probably was worth it. The blog is still active. What's the name of the blog? It is uh, MeaningfulHITNews.com, which was a play on uh, Meaningful Use, which is kind of passe now. But the blog is still there. It was dormant for a couple of years when I had a full-time job. It was reactivated when I lost that job earlier this year. And it's been dormant for a while, but I will be posting something this weekend. I don't know when the, when this podcast is actually going to run, but I will be posting something. It's June. I w- will be posting something about the death of a very large figure in health IT last week. And uh, you know, you'll see it when it's up there. Cool. I'll, I'll be sure to, to tune into that. And so you spent a lot of time on the health IT beat, Neil. Mm-hmm. What do you think a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda today? What should that be? How should they address it? Right. Well, they're all talking about patient engagement. They have to because of starting with meaningful use stage two, but they have to, I think, do a little more. And I think what's is a hot topic, but maybe in talk only is interoperability. The data still isn't interoperable. Here we are 13 years after the foundation of the Office of the National Coordinator. What is it? Six years after Meaningful Use 
started eight years after the passage of you know the High Tech Act that, that created Meaningful Use, and we're still having having issues uh, exchanging data. You know, healthcare is one of the few industries out there that still uses fax machines, and that's how people exchange data. And the you know, doctors don't get a full picture. And the other thing is the usability of EHRs is an ongoing problem. Vendors are finally recognizing it, but I don't think you can blame fully blame the vendors. They're just giving the customers what they want, and health systems have not been uh, really all that interested in, in the usability of the EHRs. They wonder why some implementations fail. It's because the doctors don't like becoming uh, typists and clerks. Neil, that's such a great point, this idea of meaningful use and and how it is that how are we working to get interoperability at the forefront of of the agenda? As you work with various organizations in your recent past and now in your new capacity, can you think of an example of somebody that's doing a good job at this that maybe we could start to think about as a model for this change? Yeah, I think it's some of the, the deeply integrated health systems like Kaiser Permanente is is the one that immediately comes to mind with everybody. But I think there's some good examples in Pennsylvania as well, in particular. I'm thinking of Geisinger, and I'm also thinking of UPMC, which are very tightly integrated that have their own health plans as well. And they kind of have a need to share data because the financial incentives are there because they have both sides, you know, the payer and the provider side, and Highmark as well in Pittsburgh. I think, though, ACOs are still largely in accountable care organizations where there is the incentive to share data, are still largely nascent. And I did a research project in the, my brief unemployment recently that in which I talked to several CIOs and, and other executives about their participation in value-based purchasing and even some, some big names, and I'm you know, contractually obligated not to talk about them, but even some very big names are doing very little with value-based care. And you know that's sort of the basis of accountable care right there. And that creates the financial incentives to share data with supposedly competing providers. Sure. Neil, and I think you brought up a topic that is, I think, core to the issue of, of why we haven't seen interoperability or, or meaningful use. And really, it gets down to that connection to the finances and, and the fact that oh, we, yes. our payers are separate from our caregivers. And these institutions that have done so have done so because it's in their best interest. Yes. And in some ways, they, they were forced. I think Medicare has been forcing the issue ever since the, a little known, I'm going to back up for a second. One thing that, sure. that's largely missing from the public debate over healthcare reform is actual healthcare reform, because the public debate over the Affordable Care Act and the entire contents of the proposed American Health Care Act that, you know, that passed the House a month or so ago deals with insurance coverage, not with care. And they're not the same thing. Now, there is a provision in the Affordable Care Act that I think your listeners know very well, and that's the Medicare uh, preventable readmissions policy that's been in place since since uh, 2011, I believe, yeah. that forces a little bit more accountability when you discharge patients with certain conditions from the hospital, because if they come back within 30 days, Medicare won't reimburse you again. That's for some changes. But it's limited. But it's limited. Yeah. Right. And, and Medicare has been, CMS has been expanding that. I don't know what the fate of that is going to be under the new administration. I think Seema Verma at CMS knows what she's doing. 
for sure. But I know that Tom Price, the the new HHS secretary, has been very skeptical of value-based purchasing. And that comes from his background as not only a surgeon, but you know, somebody who was active in the AMA and other organized medicine groups that really, and he seems to be against anything that takes money out of doctors' pockets. Yeah. So you, you make some really great call outs here, Neil. It's insurance coverage versus care. And the reform that, that has, has recently been put into effect is really more about insurance coverage. Right. Well, the ACA, at least if you only read the mainstream news, national news, or even the even the partisan blogs, you're going to only hear about insurance coverage. But if you dig into the Affordable Care Act a little more, there are some real reform plans in there. And, you know, they certainly aren't going to fix everything. Um, I've, I've said all along that the ACA is a flawed piece of re- legislation, but I've also warned against throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which seems to be what the House version of the American Health Care Act does, although it doesn't really touch Title Three of the Affordable Care Act, which deals with care delivery and accountable care. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that they didn't touch that. But you also wonder, is CMS going to continue on the trajectory of moving 50% of fee-for-service to value-based by 2018, which was the plan in the previous administration? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. I mean, we definitely are in a time of a lot of change. And really, as healthcare leaders and influencers are listening to this, Neil, what would you say the bird's eye view on some of the folks that are doing things that could be sustainable and effective to improve outcomes? Yeah. Well, I think one thing is you got to listen to patients. And I've seen that in my own experience with with my dad. I've seen that in uh, talking to some people in the engaged patient or empowered patient community. I've seen that at some of the conferences I went to. I went to an interesting one last year, maybe two years ago, the Cleveland Clinic uh, Experience and Empathy Conference is a good one, which I think just happened this year, a month ago. I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah, it's a very good one. And, you know, there was another patient engagement conference that I went to where they had people from the Cleveland Clinic who came and demonstrated how they actually brought in improv actors to help train staff on uh, how to deal with patients better and how to listen to patients. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so would you say from your perspective, Neil, that the Cleveland Clinic is somewhat taking a charge on making an impact this with this idea of listening to patients? I think they have. I don't know how much of it is lip service and how much of it is real. I think there's certainly a lot of lip service to a lot of things all over healthcare, especially in competitive markets where they advertise everything we do is done around the patient. Well, no, really everything that they do is done around the pursuit of the almighty dollar or you know, trying to keep costs down in some way. Listening to patients is one of them. And listening to patients is a big cultural change for a lot of doctors as I'm sure you know. Yeah, and it's interesting that it is that way. I know that there's a lot of doctors that care and that want to do the best for their patients. And oftentimes it's the environment that they're in that forces them to be more like factory workers instead of caregivers. Yeah, and doctors don't want to be the factory workers that they've turned into. But some of them also have this mentality that, okay, well, they went to med school, they you know, spent, you know, all these years in a residency and they know better. And this patient came in with something that they found on Google or on, you know, on WebMD or something like that. And how do they know what they're talking about? But sometimes the patient does know better. And sometimes, you know, the doctor is so rushed that they don't make 
the best decisions or the information isn't presented in, to them in the right way. So they don't have the most accurate information ahead of them, in front of them. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, just sidebar to the audience, as we look to raise the patient experience, uh, the quality of the patient experience, and as we look to provide more empathy to our patients. I think it's uh, it's really neat what the Cleveland Clinic's doing, uh, being doing creative things like bringing improv actors to break the mold of, of what it is that is currently in place and just trying different things to see what will resonate because ultimately we do need to start listening more. We, st- yes. we need to start listening more. And actually, we, we did an interview recently, Neil, where I had a gentleman, CEO of a hospital. He mentioned so many hospitals ask, how did we do? Instead of asking, how are you? And it's this shift of, it doesn't matter about the performance. Talk, ask the patient how they're doing. Yeah, well, I think up to this point, a lot of what's been going on is just chasing better patient scores. Scores, yeah, chasing. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what what would you say? Let's shift for a second here. You're with uh, Genomics now. Genome Web, yes. Genome Web. Tell me about an exciting project or focus that you guys are working on there and maybe something that might pique the interest of our uh, listeners. Sure. Honestly, I'm still getting my, my footing over there. I've been there just a little over two months. It's different work for sure. A lot of it is familiar in that, you know, I know that how the healthcare system works. I know how data is supposed to flow and they're trying to get genomic information into the EHR and vice versa, get, you know, EHR data and patient developed data, patient generated data into to clinical decision support systems along with the genome data. I think the genomics folks are heavily invested in clinical decision support and in analytics because the genome data is just so large and, you know, they need the computing power, they need the, you know, the better software. So I think, uh, you know, in, in many ways, there's a lot, you know, a lot of overlap and commonality there. And I'm not sure if a lot of healthcare systems other than the big academic ones, have addressed this problem yet. And what, what would you say the, a core thing that you guys are working on there is that is aiming toward improving healthcare outcomes? Well, we have an, a fairly new site called 360dx.com, where it's looking at the diagnostic side of, of medicine using, using big data and genomics. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So, in fact, my business card makes it seem like I work for both. And if I hand it to you on one side versus the other, you might think that my job is with 360DX. So, you know, so Genome Web is moving into that pretty aggressively. Interesting. Who's in charge of that effort over there? De facto editor of 360DX named Tony Fong. Got it. And he's uh, he's the one that, that sort of uh, spearheaded this and, and is, is driving it? I'm not sure where, where it might have come from above, actually. I honestly... Don't know the company well enough yet. I'm one of two employ two editorial employees not based in their New York office, so I'm probably not, I'm not privy to a lot of the the day to day discussions as much maybe as much as other people who are in the office every day. For sure, I'm here in Chicago with you. Yeah, no, sitting I in, my, in my home office. <laughs> I yeah. totally get it, man. Yeah. So that's interesting. So 360DX, looking at diagnostics and the genome, I think as we start approaching better options for care, in particular, when we think about oncology, this idea of being able to dive into a patient's genome to tailor medicine to them instead of throwing the kitchen sink at them right. is very fascinating. And I think as healthcare leaders look to improve the way that they do things and we're getting pressure to get more efficient and more affordable, I think it's a, a very interesting prospect. If you guys are yeah. curious, 
be sure to to visit 360dx.com. Along with everything else that we talk about here, any resources mentioned, you could visit the website at outcomesrocket.com. In the search bar, type in Neil, and uh, you'll see his episode come up, and you'll have access to everything that we've talked about. Neil. Let's pretend one of the things that I do on the show is we build a leadership course on, on what it takes to be successful in medicine today. And with you, we're going to do a little journalistic spin. Okay. This is sort of a lightning round. And so I have four questions and then we're going to conclude it with a book that you recommend to our listeners. Are you ready for it? Ooh, I got to recommend a book to listeners. Okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, you ready to roll? Yeah. Awesome. So what is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? I think it's to listen to patients, to other sources of information, to get as much information as you can. Love it. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid in the process? Being a little too, uh, I'd say, close-minded or old-fashioned in your thinking and that, okay, I'm going to make the decision and I don't need any help here. For sure. Not asking for help, right? Yeah. And, it's, uh, it's an ego thing for, for a lot of practitioners or it's a time thing sometimes. Yep. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite the constant change? You know, unfortunately, it's become about branding and not about performance. And so can you d- dive into that just a little bit more? Sure. I think that you know organizations stay relevant by advertising in their local markets to say, hey, we got, you know, rated so and so by, you know, by health grades or something or by the Joint Commission or by US News without saying really why. It's like or they come up with a slogan to say, you know, our health system is better than your health system and it's become about marketing rather than about who's going to produce the best outcome for your particular condition. Got it. Thanks for diving into that a little bit deeper. Sure. I think it's on point. What's one area of focus that should drive everything else in the organization? Safety and following set processes and protocols. Obviously, there you know there are exceptions to the rule, but I think there's too much variation. For example, the Dartmouth Atlas has shown. Can you dive into that a little bit more? What do you yeah. Mean? Yeah, I mean the, the Dartmouth the, Atlas. Yeah, the Dartmouth Atlas. That's the map that shows the variations in care outcomes and in costs from one part of the country to another. And it's like you don't know if you're, you know, paying more doesn't necessarily get you get you more. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I wasn't aware of that. I'll have yeah. to I'll have to check it out. Yeah, Dartmouth Atlas. And so yeah, that that Dar- Dar- Dartmouth Dartmouth. Dar- yeah, Dartmouth. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Fantastic. Took a note here. Yeah. Uh, and so that's uh, very interesting. I definitely know that there's companies out there looking to apply different technologies to help reduce the uh, variation mm-hmm. here. And um, it'd be interesting to see how they envel- uh, really kind of take up a, a new approach to this and, and how they envelope such a big industry in, in these algorithms that they're trying to apply. It's uh, fascinating. What would you say the book you recommend to our listeners. Okay. It's one that I've started but haven't finished yet, so I don't know if I can give a full recommendation, but I find a very interesting one being um, The Digital Doctor by uh, Bob Wachter from uh, UCSF. He's the chair of hospital medicine at UCSF, and I think he was one of the one of the founders of the hospitalist movement. Very interesting. Cool. Thank you for the recommendation. We'll add sure. that on there. So there you go, Outcomes Rocket listeners. Listen to patients. Just don't be closed-minded. Branding versus performance and keeping safety at the forefront. And finally, the book, 
The Digital Doctor by Bob Walker. All of these things will be in the resources page under the episode, Neil. So appreciate you running us through that, Neil. Before we conclude, I just uh, want to flip the mic over to you again and have you provide one closing thought and the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you. Okay. Well, my closing thought again is you got to get patients involved. You got to put aside some of the historical sort of competitive restraints and barriers that have gotten in the way of providing proper care in the past. As far as getting a hold of me, probably uh, the best way I you know, get inundated with emails sometimes, especially for companies pitching me, um, especially in the weeks leading up to hymns every year. Oh, yeah. It's, they uh, really it, want, it, they want it, some uh, uh, spotlight. <laughs> yeah, it's overwhelming sometimes. So I'd say uh, follow me on Twitter. I haven't been as active as, as I had been in the past because I'm not writing as many stories as I had been in the past. But you follow me on Twitter at nversel, N-V-E-R-S-E-L. I'm really open to you know LinkedIn invitations as well. Excellent. Although if you're going to use it just to market to me, then I might delete you if you get a little too aggressive. <laughs> Consider that a warning right there. <laughs> there you go. So Outcomes Rocket listeners, Neil's provided uh, his closing thought and, and the best way to get a hold of him. He's He's been in the business for a long time and covers a lot of the, the key topics in, in our industry. So I thought it'd be refreshing to get a perspective from a established journalist like Neil. I hope you got a lot of value from it. Neil, I just want to say thank you so much for spending the time on the show with us today and looking forward to connecting with you here soon. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Saul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 